Fulhamish is backed for the season by Ladbrokes. Hello listeners, welcome to the Fulhamish podcast, your audio accompaniment to the ups and more ups of being a Fulham fan in 2018. My name's Jack Collins and I'll be the captain of your black and white ship this evening as we traverse the spectacularly smooth waters which seem to be all around Slavisa's boys right now. On board with me I have the ever-reliable first mate that is Professor Ben Jarman. Good evening everyone. And a new recruit on the audio side of HMS Fulhamish, our Snapchat supremo Jack Kelly. Hello, all. How are we this evening, boys? Very well. Mate, really good, you? Yeah, very, very well, thank you. Well, Saturday's win against Derby was another statement of intent from the boys in black and white, with a first-half performance that showed the Rams that Fulham were just more than just a pretty face. There's plenty to discuss around the performance, but first of all, let's start off with some three-word reviews. Ben? If we're talking about a statement of intent, there are 113 uh, three-word review statements on uh, Twitter alone, but we've picked out four of them from Twitter this week. And next week we'll probably pick out from Instagram or Facebook. So this week our four were on our way from FFC Dom, snow stopping Fulham from some guy called Jack Kelly, <laughs> rambunctious Ryan Ramifies from La- uh, Lawrence Craven, That's and <laughs> Rowitz Rams Ramshackled by Adbron Smith, who also writes for us a little bit on fullerwish.co.uk. Indeed, very, very good, very good. And there were, as we say, a load this week, so please do keep them coming in. We do enjoy reading the three-word reviews. Just to say before we crack on with Derby that this season, Fulhamish is backed by Labrooks. And for exclusive special offers before Cheltenham next week and promotions, you can head to bet.fulhamish.co.uk. Well, let's move on to the game at Pride Park. There was a fair amount of nerves going in Saturday's game. We don't have a great record there in Derby. We never win against Gary Rowett's sides and it literally snowed all week. Honestly, how confident were you before the game? Jack, I'll I'll go to you first. Well, this is the thing because, you know, before Villa and before Bristol and before Wolves, you know, I wasn't confident because of the actual opposition we played. But given the results and what we've been producing over the last, well, since the beginning of the year, I was fairly confident. But then again, you know, with the record with Derby, I wasn't confident at the same time. I wasn't confident in the fact that it's a Rowett team and we never beat a Rowett team because they're so well coached. Uh, they're, they're incredibly dangerous in uh, pretty much all areas of the pitch there. They've got the league's top scorer in Vidra. And I think basically the way we, we went into the game in our vein of form underlined how well we're playing at the moment. But then that victory there underlined and made us stand out as... Some a team that has the credentials to challenge for an automatic promotion place despite Cardiff being a fair few points in front of us. And I think, as is replicated in the whole fan base now, that we actually feel that Fulham can go up automatically this year. Fulham started the game brighter and Ryan Sessegnon fashioned his first chance of the game from a really weird bit of hustling in the middle from Mitrovic where the ball sort of bobbled out. Our opening period hasn't always been brilliant, so this was kind of good to see in a way. Yeah, I think in the in the two games, particularly against Aston Villa and against uh, Wolves, we stood off a bit in the first half and we let them come on to us. And I think in in those situations, it was really good because they're two very dangerous teams, especially on the counter attack. Um, so to let them come on to us and allow us to figure them out was a really good start to the game. But Derby, on the other hand, I think we can go at them, and, and we showed early on that we that was how we wanted to play, and it was mirrored throughout the rest of the game. Yeah, I think that Ryan Sessegnon chance, uh, it's funny because, you know, it, him in that kind of position, you'd actually expect him to put it in the back of the net. And to be fair, he strikes it pretty well, but uh, Carson got down really well. And it, yeah, it did show that we, you know, we were on the front foot and we were 
creating chances from from the get-go. Well, obviously, you just mentioned the counter-attack, Ben. They did then go up the other end and stick the ball in the back of the net, and it was rightfully disallowed for offside, and, uh, but quite thankfully so after the Derby fans near us decided to, to give it extremely large before <laughs> they'd seen the whistle, which is obviously <laughs> enjoyable. But Fulham made them pay minutes later when Mitro struck home following a slightly bizarre corner routine. What was, what was your take on the corner? I like it because it's obviously from the training ground, and um, you could tell as soon as that ball's whipped outside the box, you think, OK, something's, something's going to happen here. And you Hansen, we kind of lofts it into the box. Obviously, it comes off Kurt. I think it comes off Curtis Davis. Yeah. Mm. And obviously, he's got no time to react. Um, the reaction from Mitrovic is, is brilliant. And then he might kind of like scuffs the. Sh- well, he gets a shot away, takes the deflection, and goes into the corner. And I tell you what, it's. Uh, yeah, it was a, a wonderful start. It was only 10 minutes into the game and uh, after they you know, got the offside goal, when that ball went in, I thought, oh God, here we go. And then the, obviously the flag went up, so it's fine. But um, going 1-0 up at Pryor Park, that was, that was a great feeling. This The goal that, and the way we took it underlined the fact that we should be more experimental with corners, in my personal opinion. Yeah. And we've discussed this on the podcast in the past and throughout this season, is that short corners tend to work for us because they allow to, us to have more space in the box. We don't have a particularly tall team, so to enable us to get any sort of advantage, it's the way we're going to have to play. And you know it, I know it, Jack. <laughs> short corners work better than corners pumped yeah. into the box. It's a yeah. higher conversion rate. Can you call that a short corner? The ball travelled further than it would have done in a normal corner. Uh, <laughs> I think we'll allow it for the purpose of... Uh, purpose of description. <laughs> exactly. It was one of those things, though, where, you know, there are plenty of times in that kind of, you know, experiment where Johansson lofts that ball back in and mm. it gets headed away first mm. touch, right? Yeah. And then everyone's going, what, what on earth was that? Yeah. But especially because the ball looked like it stretched Steph to get to actually get to it to lift it back. So for it to, to come off is obviously a, a quite a nice, you know, catharsis of those kind of uh, those of us who are into short corners, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, I think mean, the ex- oh, the technique that Steph, Stephanie Hansen had to do that on the swivel and then get it into the box is is absolutely supreme. But like, I think the way the Matt Target actually took the free kick is really reminiscent, if any of you guys have seen this, of the way that James Ward-Prowse delivers as well. Okay. He has the same whip on the instep. And I think if we get a corner or a free kick in, a, in an area where the Target can really whip it into the box and we'll look really dangerous, especially with Mitrovic in there. Well, there was nothing bizarre or you know funny about the second goal. And talking of sublime technique from Stephanie Hansen, he presses and he does a back heel through the legs of Curtis Davis. And you know Ryan Sessegnon does what you expect him to do in these situations, and he sticks it home. Is there anything more we can say about this kid? Oh, it's it, I can't. I just couldn't believe it. Like I had to you know do the Snapchat, and you know two weeks previous, I've said, oh Ryan Sessegnon scores again. I just don't know how to like even announce that he scored again because <laughs> like he just Running keeps doing phrases. it. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it's a brilliant finish if you think about it, because you know, he's slightly wide and you know he has to drill that across goal, which obviously he does in the bottom corner. Uh, Castle of no chance, but the flick from Johansson it is genius. It, it reminds me of the goal that Sessegnon scored away at Newcastle last season, where Luca does a little flick. But uh, I think it's probably a better technique from Johansson, and the finish from Sessegnon is, oh, he's, he's, I don't want to say he's world class, but he's unbelievable for 17. It's incredible. You run out of superlatives for Ryan Sessegnon on a, because every single thing we come up with on a weekly basis, he seems to eclipse it the next game. It's, it's almost impossible to keep up with the amount that he's growing week on week. And, and it's, it's amazing. Like It's literally baffling. I can't. When people ask me about it in work and in personal life, how, how good a player is Ryan Sessegnon, 
it's almost impossible to give them a a number of a range of words that accurately sum up how you can feel about a, a guy like that and who's playing that well. Well, we'll come on to writing session in greater depth in, in the second half of this show. But Fulham could and perhaps should have been further ahead at halftime. Mitrovic comes close. There's a couple of scuffles in the box which you know could have fallen the way that uh, uh, Fulham was that close to a perfect first half performance. Do you think, Joe? Yeah, I mean, I think if we added the third, that would have been perfect. But you could just tell after the second goal, we kept winning the ball back in um, the ball back in high positions. You could tell the Derby fans were getting frustrated. You know, they're a team who you know at home expect to win every every home game basically, and, and we basically showed them up in the first half. And um, yeah, we could have been further in front with Mitrovic. It's a shame we didn't get that goal, but it was almost perfect, you could say. Derby obviously got a rollicking at half-time from Gary Rowett, and the second half was a much more even affair. Fulham did come close to a third, though, when Sessa Mitrovic linked up and the flash ball was just ahead of the Serbian hitmen. Would that have killed the game? Surely they, there was no way back from 3-0 in the second half. No, you rarely see a team come back from 3-0 down, especially against the quality of Fulham. I don't think Derby would have been anywhere near coming back if they went 3-0 down. The only time they exercised any real control in the game was in the period between the two goals in the first half and then towards the end of the game in the second half after they had scored. Before that, they were essentially non-existent for large periods of time. And as Jack says, we pressed really, really well. And if we'd got that third there, I don't think it, it, it could have been floodgates. It could have been four or five. Derby hit back. Yeah, very soon after that and, and we said about making Derby pay for their offside goal in the first half they did somewhat make Fulham pay for that missed chance uh, although a particularly controversial goal in some camps and uh, a lot's been made of the, the foul on Cameron Jerome is that a foul? it kind of looks a bit like six of one and half a dozen of the other to me and you know it, while it's a good finish from Huddleston there's always going to be questions raised in that kind of tackle especially it, it looked like McDonald got the ball it's soft, isn't it? It's, it's really soft. And all we have to talk about is the consistency of refereeing in this division because although we've won here and it hasn't really influenced the game, I'm sure if that had been a 1-0 to Derby result, then we would have been talking about that in a much bigger mm. context. Um, but because we've won here, that refereeing error, per se, it doesn't have to be raised. We said the I, same about the penalty against Wolves, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very, it is a very soft um, decision. Well, the Rams came to life after that in certain circumstances and the last 15 minutes in particular were you know, uncomfortable, I'd say, as a Fulham fan there. Fulham didn't seem to get the control back that they'd have for the majority of the game. Do you, do you know, what, what was that? Why, why did Fulham not be able... You know, we had a foothold in the game yeah. and even before they scored, we had a foothold in the same... Yeah, it was a little bit more, you know, even in terms of how, you know, chance were progressing. But... After the goal went in, the control seemed to completely stop from that Fulham midfield, who'd been so sort of dominant in the first half. Yeah, it was disappointing to see because obviously, you know, when you concede away from home, you know, you know, to half the deficit, then the crowd start believing they can, they can get an equaliser. You know, the players will be thinking, "Oh my God, the the, the crowd are on their uh, are on Derby's side, and this could this could really go wrong." But I think with all of Derby's qualities we, we matched them defensively Adoy and um, and, and uh, Reem at the back were fantastic again it was it was very nervy when they when they got the goal back and uh, obviously Huddleston scoring that's not great because uh, the goal he scored against us against Hull he only scores against us yeah. he scores once every sort of million games <laughs> yeah. and he's always been against us yeah it was it was nervy and um it was not a great feeling from the. I think you could tell in, in the away end, everyone was going, "Oh God, this is actually going to fall apart here." But uh, we managed to hold on, which was wonderful. It did feel a bit nervy at times. I think it's because of their league position that 
that I think Fulham fans have felt a little bit uh, uh, uneasy, and mainly because I think what they did after that second after they scored, they started to pull McDonald around a bit, and then therefore it pulled Ream out of defence as well, and sort of left Adoy isolated against Jerome. Um, and I think when we took off um, Stephen Johansson and we really started to lack his industry in there, and yeah. when you get someone like Ollie Norwood in there, he's not going to really put in the miles. He's a he's a passer and he's really good at relieving pressure, but he's not going to take the ball out of the third. He's going to try and pass it out. And that midfield that we have in there with TC um, and Stefan Johansson, particularly TC this game, is really good at relieving pressure. I think if you look at the first half in particular, the amount of times that TC takes the ball out of dangerous areas and into different thirds of the pitch, it really helps to relieve pressure. And that's what we were missing when Aluko left earlier on in the season. We didn't have TC. It's because we were so static. Something I noticed again was that Mitrovic faded for the second time in two weeks after the 60th minute. Is he currently a 60-minute player? And is this about fitness? Or is it him not being able quite yet to get to grips with a system that and he must, you know, he obviously presses more. He, he's made to do more sort of physical work on his own, hold the ball up on his own, as opposed to, you know, playing in a two or playing, you know, in the way that Benitez did at Newcastle. Is that just a fitness issue, or is you know should we have brought AK or Font on there, and, and would that have changed? Would that have changed things maybe? It's really a mixture of the two because he's not played for a very long time in there, and Slavisa's system, as you say, and you, you correctly highlight there, is really technically quite advanced for a championship team, and I think if you're going to really want to embed yourself in Slavisa's team, you need to be there for an extended period of time. But bearing in mind he's only been there since the last day of January therefore he's only had three or four very short weeks to embed himself into what Slavisa actually wants him to do at the same time whilst trying to get match fit in a very physical league um, in answer to your question I think we should have brought on someone a little bit more rugged up front perhaps an AK would have been the guy but you have to ask is he going to give you the same amount of control and hold up play that Mitrovic was going yeah, to Precisely. and like you said he did fade but he still offered that somewhat and, and, I don't think and height either. and presence in the box defending corners exactly. I suppose is the is the trick what do you think Jack? Um, I think yeah Mitrovic is integral to holding up the play and, and, and linking in with the midfield and the wide men and um, there was about three or four occasions in that game where during that corner in the first half that came in mm. from Johansson he literally just took it down in his chest like so comfortably under no pressure whatsoever he is so important up front and um, I feel like he deserved the 90 minutes but then again I wouldn't have been surprised if he got subbed so there were three minute, last minute heroics to talk about. I'm going to talk about them first and then I'm going to ask you a question that's posed to us on Twitter. So first, Reem with potentially the block of the season when Betts was caught out of position. And then K-Max slides in to prevent a certain goal by Tom Lawrence. And then Betts himself denies Richard Keir at the death with an absolute wonder save. So first, you know, what were your thoughts on Derby's late barrage? But Priam on Twitter said to us, this season we are far better at grinding out wins than last season. Why is that? Is it personnel, coaching? tactics or simply that we're more experienced but I think maybe in, in greater context not just this season but you know think back to the start of the season when we conceded loads of last minute mm. goals you know look back at Borough QPR right? mm. it didn't go completely wrong but he conceded late and Norwich you know what what's changed since then that we can now grind out these results I think it's just been the fact that we've just as you said dropped so many points at home early on if we hadn't dropped those points we'd probably be in the top two right now and yeah. flying and, and we'd be the, the favourites to, to go up behind Wolves um, it's, it's, it must be what the coaches are saying. The, the need to, to grind out results in this league is, is so important to, to grabbing two extra points or one extra point. I mean, it's just uh, it's crucial. And 
the fact that you know against Derby when always they're going to score and then they're going to rush men forward and there was three different situations we had to deal with there yes we got ourselves under a lot of pressure uh, with Betts dropping the ball and, and you know and we dealt with it really well and that's just got to be down to, to the mentality of the players they just have improved over the, over the course of the season I would say it's probably three main factors one is probably the fitness of the players as a whole and that obviously comes from the backroom staff because in the way that Slavisa wants us to play and the way the league is it's very physical it's 100% from the word go and to be able to uh, maintain that level of being able to play in the championship and in this system you have to be incredibly fit obviously uh, the second point would be that last year we were in this same position the players in the majority of, of the squad we've managed to maintain them all and they understand what it's like to be in this position year on year. So therefore, they understand what it's what they need to grind out these results and to take the victories. And we're seeing this with even with the the, um, the new players that's come in the last few, three or four weeks. We've seen an upturn in results because they have lifted our current squad to another level. Something like uh, Target was was excellent at left back. Yeah. Uh, Mitrovic has been nothing short of quality. So I think that's two main factors there I just think that overall we're a much better team than we were last year as we said in the podcast last week I think this team would comfortably beat last last season's team so we should touch on Tom Kearney briefly because he posted some unbelievable numbers but he also potentially more importantly looked back to his scintillating best Derby couldn't get near him it was 116 touches 89 accurate passes 9 successful dribbles but I think this is potentially the key stat here 17 battles for possession one that's unbelievable for a centre midfielder that people have called lightweight in the past it's monumental nothing short monumental surely I mean he was head and shoulders above everyone on the pitch that day that we talked we touched on it earlier the way he he moves the ball about the way he he just re well like oozes confidence when he's on the ball and he can move through the transition so quickly we took Mourinho himself talks about transition football and the importance of the transition there's no better player in the championship through the transition than Tom Kearney is yeah. he's absolutely immense and he's what links the team together and there's no there's obviously a massive correlation between our upturn and results and Tom Kearney's return to fitness and also the implementation of um, Target Mitrovic and the whole squad returning back to form it was wonderful it was probably his best performance if not this season since uh, Ipswich away where again he was he was very good but no you, you could you could tell like he was back to his best you know, the way he just linked everything up and it was just wonderful. I think if we had him not in the team and we had Norwood, it could have been a different outcome. Overall then, a brilliant win and a brilliant performance, especially in the first half. How do Fulham keep this going? What what needs to happen to, to make sure this run continues, basically? Just keep winning. Just keep winning the games <laughs> is, is the obvious answer. Um, but obviously with Sheffield United on Tuesday. Um, well, this is the thing because, you know, when it came to Wolves and it came to Villa at home, we thought, oh, maybe this, this could, might be the we get to lose but we didn't and those are the two of the best sides in the division we, we can beat anybody anywhere on our day in the championship we've just got to just keep I mean obviously the confidence is so high at the moment um, you, you saw in the Football Focus interview I don't know if you saw it with Tim Ream and, and Kearney where they just said the confidence is so high and it, it makes me feel very comfortable going to a game walking to the ground and thinking yeah we're, we're going to do it today and I think tomorrow night although it could be tricky against you know, a Sheffield United team are chasing down the playoffs. We have enough in our team to, to win. For me, it's rotation. You have to, at this business end of the season, you have to manage your squad perfectly. And we are rotating so well at the minute. And I think I would probably expect to see someone like Cyrus Christie play tomorrow night, maybe Ojo, 
Um, and we may even see AK start up front tomorrow against Sheffield United and just try and wear them out before introducing Mitrovic. But rotation is the key at this stage of the season and there's no, there's no debate in that. So coming up, we'll be talking more about that Sheffield United game. We'll get everybody's you know, first choice lineups. And then we're going to have a little chat about Ryan Sessegnon's stylistic approach. And a whole host of your questions after the break. Fulhamish is running a little bit hand-to-mouth this week, but we will be back on Thursday with a podcast looking back at the Sheffield United game and looking forward to our tear-up to Preston North End at Deepdale on Saturday. But first, Sheffield United. The Blades obviously had an unbelievable start to the season, led by their twin talisman Leon Clark and Billy Sharp, who are, to put it nicely, experienced. They've fallen away a little bit since Christmas, though, and while they're still in with a shout at playoff places and they've had recent good wins against Leeds and QPR, they haven't been quite the force that they looked at the start of the season this isn't going to be easy though for Fulham no it's not going to be easy at all because they're looking to get something out of this season and so are we so it's going to be two teams who are going to play you know going to play football they'll definitely attack us with, with, with sharpness and pace and, and that's something we look out for um, I really hope that was a pun of course it was <laughs> attack it with sharpness sharpness is the blade <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even clock that triple puns everywhere these days um, but no I'm, I'm, I'm quite concerned about the Sheffield United game but then again with our qualities like I said earlier we could beat anyone on our day I think that we can get past Sheffield United if the if the rotation's um, done well enough and we have that quality in there I think we can get past them um, I think we'll probably touch on it in probably next coming questions but the, the last fixture was absolutely mental and that was when we were bang out of form and we still managed to put five goals past Sheffield United albeit um, Brian Sessegnon pulled us through and they've by got the scruff of our neck exactly. I believe is the phrase they've got, they've got a huge amount of um, talent in that squad and there are some dangerous players in there but I think if we can ramshackle the, the two strikers then you know it could, it could be uh, a job well done by Fulham I said to Jack before the game against Derby at the weekend that I was more concerned about Sheffield United at home than yeah. I was about Derby because I think they're the kind of team that will, will come and actually you know know what to do and are decent on the break and, and a talented team but it's going to be an interesting game that one's for sure obviously you know we, we surely can't see another game like the reverse fixture no well we can well, I mean, we, <laughs> we could we could I think if if they leave Clark and Sharp up front you know two on two against Reem McAllister they're not fast Adoy, yeah but they can they can cause trouble because Leon Clark's got supreme strength and Billy Sharp just seems absolutely you know he can put it in from absolutely anywhere on the pitch and he has done for a number of years now so let's not scoff at them because they haven't got too much pace yeah. I had a fiver on Billy Sharp as the championship's top scorer so I don't want to be scoffing exactly. at anybody <laughs> the thing is though we've been talking about Fulham learning from their mistakes and surely we've learned from our mistakes of not conceding four goals to Sheffield United you know the way we've improved since mm. Christmas you know you'd expect not to concede over the last six I think we've we've scored 33 goals and conceded 11 so yeah we're, we're tightened up much better. So we're saying 3 1. Much better at the back. Well, I hope so. You're much better at the back now. And one thing I've noticed I didn't put in the first se- segment is that Kevin McDonald now is much closer to those centre backs than we've seen him at any stage of the season. Uh, against Villa, he was a little bit too. F- there was a little bit too much of a gap between that triangle, shall we say, of the two centre backs and him. And now it's much closer. And we look much more solid in there. I don't know if that's been uh, part of why we, we look so much better, but I've just noticed it. Fair enough. John Fleck, uh, obviously another man with particular quality, and David Brooks, who is their kind of sort of young superstar of their own, um, is back to fitness for for this weekend. They're obviously players, but can you look past the two big men up through the middle as the obvious danger men? Probably not. 
No. I don't I don't see too much um, threat from their midfield because they're all very much like a party midfield, if you know what I mean. But the, their real um, danger for me came from the wing-backs last time because they play that sort of like three-slash-five at the back system and are really good at stretching and getting the play high high and wide quite quickly through their full-backs. Yender Stevens is a lovely player. Yeah, he's a great player. And... Uh, you know, there's no uh, no personal interest in in their <laughs> or anything. Um, how declaring interest? Yeah. How does Slavisa go about winning this game? Keep obviously the same shape, the same system that we've been playing all season. I reckon I keep the midfield three the same, just because you know you know what they're like when they when they're playing game after game and we're the winning. Musketeers. The Musketeers, basically. Maybe give Ojo a shout on the right. I'd love to see Cabano. I don't know where why he's not playing. You know, a lot of people have been saying, oh, he's got no, he's got no like end product. He's got no real. Like danger when it comes to the final third in terms of you know shooting for goal, but um, no, I'd like to see Cabano back in there. Yeah, as Ben said, put AK at the start, run him, run them ragged for sixty minutes, and then put on Mitrovic. That would that would be a wonderful way to go. I don't think this is the kind of game for Rufon. We just want to go at them with, with the same kind of style and, and try and pass our way through. Really, would you make changes then? So there seems to be a general consensus that we might see a first home start for Cyrus Christie potentially the return of Thomas Callas if his injury isn't isn't that serious what other changes would you make Ben? I anticipate that Sheffield United may drop slightly deeper than we've seen them before especially when we played them at Bramall Lane um, I feel like because they're, they're the away team and we dominate games so um, so quickly from the off that they may regress slightly into their shell um, so I'd like to see a couple of players in that can play in really tight spaces. So it might be a game to reintroduce Lucas Piaz onto a starting lineup, because we saw what he done for us in those two not so troublesome games against Sheffield uh, against Nottingham Forest and Burton. But those two games where you need someone in there who can get in and out of those small spaces unlock quite quickly, yeah, and unlock the door. And he done that for us on a number of occasions last season. And we've seen it again this season when he's returned to fitness. I'd like to see Cyrus Christie in there. We talk about a 60-minute man in Mitrovic, then Brian Fredericks, for the most part, is a 60-minute man. And after a wonderful 90 against Derby County and an even better one against Wolves, then I think we could see a, a little bit of a rest for him, if possible. Um, but other than that, I think um, it should be the same. If Callas is back, he's back. Mm. But I think Adoy has been really good in, well, manageable in centre-back when he's played. Okay, so there's two questions here that are, that are relevant to the Sheffield United thing, so I'm going to go for them now. We're, we're spreading the questions out today, Ben. We're, uh, we're yeah, mix, like mixing it up, bringing <laughs> them through. David Wellington on Twitter said, how much an advantage will it be that Sheffield United postpone their game on Saturday and will that give them the edge tomorrow night in terms of fitness and, and you know tired legs and that kind of thing? Yeah, you could argue they'd be more fresh. There's an argument to say that Fulham have the momentum with them. You know, we played on Saturday, we, we went to Derby and we won 3-1, so... You know, we'll, we'll have that confidence boost, whereas they didn't play since last Saturday, so they might be like a match sharpness. There's a case to say that all advantages are either physical in terms of them being fit enough, or it could be mental in terms of us being so confident that we can blast past anyone regardless of who plays. Mm. And I think if we look back at the season, this season in comparison to last, last season's playing squad was maybe 13 or 14 maximum, like quality players. This time it could be anywhere up to 16, 17, maybe even and maybe pushing 18 so we can get a, a decent squad out there with the rotation properly and we can get past Sheffield United I do think it will play a f be a factor if we went with an unchanged lineup. so it could be around 60-70 minutes we start to see us drop off slightly so there is one more question which is about Stefan Johansson and his yellow cards mm. Steph's now on nine yellow cards for the season oh, okay. and the, he's got two games for the cut off 
So what do you try and avoid? Obviously, Steph is probably going to try and avoid getting booked, <laughs> I, I'd imagine, as his kind of modus operandi. But do you risk, in this kind of game, giving Steph a rest? And especially after he ran himself into the ground on Saturday, is it the kind of game that Oli you can come in and, and just control control the middle? Or by doing that, you know, I, I think for me part of this is that you want Johansson. I, I want Johansson in for the QPR game. That's the game I want him in for. I think the kind of industry and and breaking the lines there is going to be absolutely crucial. Do you risk giving him a break now and him getting booked on Saturday and then missing QPR, or do you just put him in now and and see what happens? It's so tough because, as you say, there's there's two very prominent schools of thought here. My my thinking is that if Sheffield United do drop deeper, then we can afford to let Ollie Norwood go in there and work his magic as sort of like the quarterback player next to Kevin McDonald maybe push, we play, play with a double pivot and push and let, TC out forward yeah and let Kenny play in front of them um, it just depends on how deep they go say you let Steph start and you give him 60 minutes if they're still so deep you just bring on Norwood and you just you don't risk it I don't I think he I think he can contain himself He's, he seems like a, a fairly mature player to yeah. me anyway he is a Norwegian captain you'd, <laughs> yeah. you'd hope that he's he'd the be. son of Thor yeah, he's also the son of Thor. <laughs> Jack, your thoughts? Yeah, our discipline this season's actually been very, very good. Touch wood. Uh, yep. Where's the wood? Um, um, <laughs> there's no wood. There's here. no wood here. <laughs> um, but you, you'd like to think that you know he has the he has the right frame of mind to not go about and put tackles in. And I said earlier, the three Musketeers have to keep on playing and, together. Uh, you know, with that comes a risk. But I think Johansson is good enough to to know that he shouldn't be getting yellow cards. Okay, fair enough. Right, let's um, that'll, that'll wrap up our, our deal on on Sheffield United. But let's move on to a really interesting topic brought up by Alfie, uh, and Alfie says it's about Ryan Sessegnon. He says I was thinking the other day about how Sess is a really old-fashioned winger in that he uses his body rather than like flair or pace to beat defenders. He uses his brain to get in the right places and. He's obviously so consistent at such a young age, but it's interesting that his style of play isn't the usual kind of winger technique or of a step over or a trick and then beat the man down the outside, but more along the lines of sort of rolling his man or disappearing quickly in the kind of way that Bastian Schweinsteiger maybe used to do. Someone, you know, be able to literally disappear for a while and reappear, and by the time you noticed it was too late. Yeah, and, or, you know, using a quick one-two to get past it. Does that kind of style of play mean that Sess's hype is more valued than someone who's basically, you know, let's take Patrick Roberts, for example, who was just unbelievably good with his feet. and But he was using, you know, skill and pace to get around players. Sess's kind of intelligent football, does that justify his hype potentially more than any other player? With his intelligent way of playing, it does add value because it makes it more unpredictable. And with unpredictability, you get, you know, him making more dangerous runs, getting into more dangerous areas. Whereas um, if you're on the ball and you're doing all these step overs, you know, it's all well and good doing the tricks, but can you actually pull it off and get a ball into the box? Can you get the momentum with your feet to put the ball into the box? Um, Saturday was a wonderful example because with that goal he scored, he kind of just came out of nowhere. And then as soon as that ball was played by Johansson, albeit it was a wonderful ball, he just it was in the right place at the right time. Ryan is potentially one of the most impressive footballers in his position, given his age in the world right now, mainly because he has the intelligence to understand what situations he needs to be in, where to put himself at what time and how to get there. But over the past six or seven weeks, he's added that goal-scoring nous to his game. And that finish on uh, Saturday 
was more of a Thomas Muller sort of school than it was of a Gareth Bale or a uh, or of a flashy winger like someone like Yannick Balassi. You wouldn't see Balassi turning and hitting that across the keeper with such confidence and with such thump, a thumping finish as Ryan did. Ryan's so impressive because he really understands where he needs to be to outfox an opponent. And I think that's the schooling of um, of someone that's played as a left back and understands what every defender hates. And he does remind me of, of, of as Alpha says, is a very old school inside forward sort of um, winger actually. And it's very, it's really pleasing to see someone like a, a, that sort of position come back into the modern game because it disappeared for a while. As you said, the, the emphasis was on players such as Patrick Roberts, the likes of Balassi, maybe like your Neymars, that sort of thing, who are just flying wingers with a lot of tricks. Not a, so much of an emphasis on those goal-scoring wingers like Sessegnon is now. He understands where to be in the box, how to be there because he's a left-back and he understands what they hate and what they, you know, and how to get there. That kind of Salah instinct, some would say. Exactly. You know, obviously it's not quite the same comparison in terms of pace. But I was having a discussion with someone the other day and they were like, why is Sessegnon so good? And it's kind of hard to pin down because Mm. he's, you know, he's quick, but he's not that Mm. quick. He's strong, but... He's not that strong, mm. uh, you know, and he, you know, he obviously is a tricky player to come up against, but he's not, you know, dancing around players for fun. And it's kind of interesting to think about it in a different kind of way and look at it as, like you said, that kind of inside forward role, which is really, really probably more important. And someone said to me the other day, has Sess ever played on the right? No. And I thought this was really interesting because, yeah, he probably could, though. Yeah, and he obviously hasn't, good. but could we see Cess become an inverted winger in the style of, you know, say the Hodgson teams of, you know, the, the Europa League era? And, you know, Damien Duff cutting inside on that left foot was magic for a while. Yeah. And it really, really did offer Fulham a, a different thing. And it might be interesting when he comes up against, you know, a higher quality of defender to see how he fares cutting inside yeah. rather than trying to beat people down that outside kind of channel. No, there's also... Th- there's also the the thing about Ryan is that he's so good at making space in areas where there isn't any space. If you think about someone like Leroy Sane, for example, at City, he works on works so well because he's isolated and he knows how to take on players one on one, and his raw speed can get past them. As you say, Ryan's not as quick as Sane, nowhere near, but he understands how to get into spaces where players can't get to. And as you said, Jack, he just appears in the box for that goal against Derby. He hits it on the turn with such velocity and such power, yeah, it really does remind me of, of someone like a Muller. You don't ever see that inside forward anymore. That Pippo Inzaghi yeah. shot, Matt. Well, exactly. you say the goal reminds you of Muller. It reminded me more of, as you mentioned, Gareth Bale and the goal he scored against Inter Milan, or the three goals he scored against Inter Milan. That low-driven shot into the corner when the keeper's got no chance. That's, it was a wonderful finish. It's just so difficult to put him in a category, in a category yeah, because he is he's two or three. And that's what I think, that's what makes him so good. Obviously, shout out to Alf for the good question as well. Mm-hmm. Nice yeah, run in the family. Yeah, well, obviously it has, <laughs> has something to do with that, that German blood. Um, it, let's move on to our question section. Our post bag was absolutely overflowing this week. And we have, you know, an absolute shed load of questions. What we're going to try and do, Ben's going to run us through these questions. We might not be able to get to all of them, but 
you know, ultimately we're going to try and answer some of them in a, in a quick fire style, get through as much as we can and really, you know, really start to, to challenge some questions and, and get to all of them because we do really appreciate you sending them in. So, yep. Ben, I'm going to hand the, the controls and, and the mic over to you and uh, all yours, Captain. Thanks, Jack. And obviously, thanks to all of you guys for sending in the questions. It's much appreciated. So the first one comes from Ali, and he says, now that Mitrovic is first choice, and it looks like Kamara is a second choice striker, what do you think will happen to Fonte now? Will he get sold, or dot, 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 question mark? It's a tricky one, because Rui Fonte is obviously a good quality player, he just doesn't really fit Fulham's style. The question is, if Fulham were to get promoted, would Font become a more valuable player because he'd probably have the time and space in the Premier League to really sort of attack the spaces that he wants to be attacking and and link up that kind of play. I don't think he'll be sold for now. You know, in the in the summer, I think we'll have to look at it and look at it in the wider context of, are we going to sign Mitrovic permanently? Are we going to sign a player like Mitrovic permanently? Or has Font just taken some time to adapt? And is he going to have spent the year bulking up and getting stronger and learning how to, you know, do really adapt to Slavisa's system? Some players don't make it first season and, and then the second season they really do start to kick on and mm. you know, look at, you know, obviously not quite the same but someone like Raheem Sterling when he went to City first and everyone was like, what on earth have they spent this money on? Mm, they absolute yeah. And now has become an absolutely crucial magnet in, in that kind of side and maybe we'll see something similar with Font where he spends a year not, you know, not being brilliant but, you know, acclimatising to the kind of system and, and working out how to play in English football and really as someone that will come good. I think we've, it's one that you've got to play by ear and, and see where we are in the summer basically. Jack? Yeah, I think uh, with Rui Font, you always want to give him, you know, the benefit of the doubt. I th- I personally feel like if we went up, he should stay in the squad. He should he should be tried out in games and, and see how he adapts to the Premier League. Uh, but if it doesn't work and it comes to January, we 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 could put him out on loan maybe. And I think he would suit a team in La Liga or, or Syria. But no, twelve million pounds is a lot of money to spend on a strike. I think we should give him more time. From my personal point of view, um, it would be nice to see Fonte stay in the squad if we go up. And I think because the Primera Liga in uh, Portugal is somewhere, is somewhere that affords a striker quite a lot of space and um, the Premier League is, affords a much more space than the uh, Championship does. So I think he may, he may be able to get more of a foothold in that style of play. Uh, I'll move on to the next question now, which is from Luke Johnson. So thanks, Luke. And his question is, how much of our recent form... Um, has been down to the revival of Stephanie Hansen. Um, I think quite a lot, to be honest. You know, we we've spoken about how important Tom Kearney's return to the fold was, um, but Tom Kearney's return to the fold also allows Steph to to become the player that you know we've seen before and, and to, to really operate properly in that midfield and it's no surprise that the games where Tom Kearney has played brilliantly have also been the games that Stephanie Hansen has played brilliantly and you know ultimately the way that Kearney sort of takes the ball through the transitions and frees up space for Steph to drive into really does allow them both to play their best game and you know they're just there living their best life when they're together and, and ultimately you've got to look at that as you know a partnership not a not something to be like oh why hasn't Johansson stepped up when Kearney's not there you know it's difficult when you are used to a certain style of play to come into another midfielder being behind you being shifted into the position of your teammate and then trying to really hold that kind of hold that kind of role which is so crucial to the entire team and who the whole team rely on in that fulcrum and so you know obviously massively part down to in part down to the revival of Tom Kearney but in doing so has allowed Steph to to free himself up again and really start to control games and dictate the tempo of games in the middle 
Yeah, I think um, Stephanie Hansen obviously last season was 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 so important uh, to the way we played. Um, you think of that goal against Cardiff where he went on that uh, driving run and finished it wonderfully into the into the net. Um, I think since 2018, when everything started to click again, you can really see where Johansson blossoms in the midfield when he goes on those and that goal he scored against um, Nottingham Forest, where you know he could have squared it, probably should have squared it, but in hindsight he then. Uh, put it into the back of the net really wonderful finish and he's just got his confidence back and when you're playing with confidence uh, in a team with confidence you're always going to play better and uh, I think confidence is down to it and of course Kenny coming back to the team as well and, and how they link together is also very important This is from BC Brown he says whilst I've been thrilled with 2018 runners as the rest of the Fulham faithful I've been trying to keep my expectations in check from the pessimist perch, here's what concerns me most if Fulham don't make the Premier League. They will likely lose a brilliant core of players over the summer. CS, TC, etc. This would be devastating as we're all going to really enjoy the squad. Who do you think the Whites would be in danger of losing should they not reach the PL? So I think you guys can give us maybe three players each and we'll just rattle through that question pretty quickly. Well, I think we won't. I think part of it is not being able to sign the likes of Mitrovic and Target. Um, I think we'd lose... Thomas Kearney as much as it pains me to say I think we, we, we'd we lose Tom this summer and kind of I wouldn't really blame him either I think it is kind of one of those things where he, he deserves a shot in the Premier League he's so good when he's on his day and he looks like a Premier League quality in the Premier League, in the Championship I think Seth still might stay I really do <laughs> I, um, my, my answer would be target Mitrovic Kearney yeah I'd say Kearney I'd also be worried about Ream um, maybe a heavyweight who's come down from the Premier League would look at Ream and then go, oh, we'd like to take him on the centre-back. That's something that scares me a little bit. Uh, obviously, Callas would go back to Chelsea, Piazza would go back to Chelsea, and it would be, you know, it'd be really, it'd be really uh, upsetting to see, you know, the team kind of torn apart like that. Um, I could see Kamara leaving as well. I don't know why. I could just see him maybe going off somewhere back to France or he could, you know, go to a different league. And that kind of scares me as well. But uh, someone told me on the train back from Derby that Sess's agent is Chris Sessignon. Who, who's his dad? That's his dad. His brother. It's his it's brother, his yeah. yeah. And that's his actual agent. And he said that Sessignon should stay at Fulham until he's 23. That's what someone told me. That, gives us, that gives us loads of time. <laughs> We've had two yeah. World Cups by now. I thought, oh my God, that's six years. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, I'd, I'd be wary of, of losing um, Reem, Kamara, and yeah, I'd have to say Kearney as well. Cool, I'll go for TC. I think if Ryan Fredericks doesn't secure a contract extension by sometime in the very near future, I think he'll go as well. Yeah. Um, and I think the final one could could well be one of uh, one of our wingers. Jamie de Havilland asks, and thanks for your question again, Jamie. I think you've been a regular contributor. Um, do you think the stroke of genius that um, Jukanovic gave TC the armband over K-Mac? Obviously, K-Mac's the leader of the team, but TC uh, seemed seem to raise his game since he's had the armband. It's an interesting one, and I agree in part. I think it's all fine this is all well and good when Fulham are are you know drawing or winning I think the the issue with this is when Fulham are losing and, and it's you know obviously disheartens the team and the fans if you lose a game and your captain goes storming down the tunnel Kenny's getting better and better and we've been saying this since the day he took the armband that he 
you know, wasn't necessarily cut out for it at the very beginning, but he has grown into the role and he's growing into it more and more. And, and ultimately he will, you know, continue to where he's, you know, he's not, he's not a young player, but you know, he's a, he's a 10, he's a, he's the maestro. He's the, the, the player in the middle that makes it all tick. And they're not usually the kind of figures that are cut out to be captains because they're usually, you know, a little bit of a maverick when you're a 10. That's what, you know, gives you a spark. But in games like Derby, as Jamie says, it gave us two real leaders within the team. And, and, and Kearney was magnificent on the weekend. He really did, you know, raise everyone's level by, you know, just pirouetting around, especially at the start end of the first half, where he was just like, they couldn't get near him, Derby. The only thing they could do to get to get close to him was kick him. And it really did give everyone a lift. And they were like, look, they can't get near Kearney. Let's, you know, let's all push on. Let's all like really start to give it to them. And in those situations, it works really well. I don't think it always works, and so I wouldn't necessarily call it a stroke of genius, but in the circumstances like are being described here, it's obviously something that is paying off. Yeah, I mean, uh, with the performance he put on on Saturday against Derby, he, he earned his captaincy. He kind of you know proved why he should be captain. Uh, but I'd make a case for McDonald as well, why he could be captain and why he's that kind of leader in, in midfield. But um, yeah, Kearney's gone from strength to strength, and, um, you know, Obviously, a bit of a confidence boost, being the captain, being the leader of the team. I could, I could give it to Reem as well. I mean, there's three players in there who, who I could, who I would actually, uh, you know, consider giving it to. But I think Kearney's really coming to his own, um, and he deserves it really. I think it's a, it is a bit of a masterstroke from um, Slav because, as Jack says, there's a certain with every number ten, there's a certain part of him that will always have an ego because they are creative players and you don't often get a creative player that doesn't have a, a sizable ego I think the only one that I can think of in the whole world is probably Iniesta who's the only 10 I know that isn't so flamboyant that it's absolutely a joke um, but that being said it's not as if um, we're stroking the ego of someone that already has a massive one for example Stevie Humphreys if we gave him the captain's armband it would just be an absolute fucking nightmare so I'm glad that TC does have it I think um, Jamie makes a great point it's raised his game entirely since he's had it and I think it gives him like a like a teenager getting more responsibility it's given TC that and it's enabled him to raise his game somewhat basically you're saying TC's got the keys to the house for the first time basically yeah we're going to go for one from Carl House so he says <laughs> very optimistically early days but if we did go up who would we miss in the championship would we have to strive to be better realistically financially we can't compete genuinely competing and beating top teams this year has been amazing but we won't have that in the Prem so what are your thoughts on this guys I think we would go from strength to strength if we got promoted with the money that came in we would improve our squad um, and I think we'd be able to be able to take on, you know, if you look at a team like Brighton, who yesterday mm. have kind of just not confirmed their place in the Premier League next season, but they've they've really, really um, taken a big step. Yeah, that's it. And I think we we can be one of those teams um, who just goes from strength to strength once you get promoted. And uh, with the squad we've already got, we have some additions that um, we could make. I saw that Zikovic was uh, linked today. We would just be a team that would just be high on confidence and, and we could not be anyone but just like I said go from strength to strength I'm a bit split down the middle on this one to be honest I someone said to me the other day they were like if you could if you could win the league but then stay in it next year I was like yeah that'd be great <laughs> I get, the, like, get all the glory of being promoted without actually having to go up mm. into the Prem there are lots of things that would be brilliant about going to the Premier League and I remember people being like things I won't miss about the Premiership after we were relegated and thinking 
I'm going to miss everything about the Premiership because, you know, it's great and magnificent and I love the Premier League and all that. But I have really enjoyed, especially obviously the last two seasons where it's been fun in the Championship and and going to all these places and, and having good aways and, and really enjoying, like, you know, life on the road in the Championship. And things are different in the Premier League. You know, you you, you get, you know, Craven Cottage will refill up with, with people who have just come to see Premier League football rather than, you know, people who have come to see Fulham and... You know those 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 things will change, and there'll be a lot of lot of things that aren't great about being in the Premier League as well. But I think ultimately, you know, you've got to strive to be the best you can be, and and I think that Fulham have a, an owner who showed that he's willing to back the side more than just on the pitch. You know, look at his investments in the in the back rooms in in the training pitch, which this week was absolutely crucial because Mosper Park was a foot, you know a foot under snow and. Ultimately, Fulham have an indoor training facility now that they can use, and and you know it showed on the pitch on Saturday when you know you can come out and Fulham hadn't looked like they looked like they've been training all week, not that they've been sitting around and, and being in gym. They look match sharp and match fit, and you know if we go up, then that Premier League that investment is going to continue at being a part of it, and it's not going to become stupid, and it's not going to you know he's not going to suddenly stop spending eighty million pounds on players, but I think that if you know that with with the backing and 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 respect he seems to have now with the manager, I think there are. There are, you know, massive steps that Fulham could fulfil if we were to make that jump again. I think it's, from a personal opinion, and please don't take this the wrong way, Carl, I think it's quite, not narrow-minded per se, but it's quite easy to say that financially we can't cope, therefore we'd be relegated. As Jack says, there's teams in the Premier League, like Brighton, teams even Watford, uh, Bournemouth, for example, who all got to the Premier League and uh, critics and so-called pundits have written them off saying that they can't compete financially the players aren't good enough and look at Bournemouth for example are in their third year in the Premier League now mm. in a 10,000 seater stadium with a very modest budget and they seem to get through year after year playing a good style of football um, Brighton this year of, of getting through a season playing again a very good style of football it's not all about competing financially and buying £80 million players like Manchester United, Chelsea, um, Arsenal, Manchester City do. It's all about recruiting particularly well and that's something that, good, that, that Fulham are very good at now. And if you look at the way that Brighton, for example, over this summer have, have competed and they've, they've um, made some fantastic signings. I was talking to Frankie, who was on last week's pod on Twitter today about who we could potentially sign um, over the course of next summer should we go up. And there are signings that you look at uh, Brighton making this summer, like the David Proper, who's a, a fantastic player, and he, they signed him from um, PSV. Mm. And he's a uh, Netherlands international um, of, of well over 30 caps. Um, he's uh, PSV's captain. They managed to sign him. He slotted in perfectly. Like Pascal Gross, come from second division in Germany. It's not about spunking loads of money on twenty pound, twenty million pound players like Everton did. It's about recruiting well and, rec and recruiting fantastically, and that's what we do. And spending within our means, and we're also very good at that. And we have a manager that, that backs us. We have an owner that backs us, and I don't see why we can't survive mm. at all. So, um, yeah, that's just my thoughts on it. Two more questions potentially, Ben. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll go for Gab Sutton from the Football Lab, uh, friend he of the, is the friend. He is the Football he Lab. He is the Football Lab. <laughs> sorry, friend of the pod as well. Indeed. Um, met Jack and Sammy a few weeks ago. Um, so he says Ryan Sessegnon's grabbed all the headlines during your recent run, but who's been the biggest unsung hero? 
It's Tim Ream, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I think the there, there's plenty of players who could stake a claim, a claim for being an unsung hero, but the the largest claim of all is is, is Tim Reams, and I think it would be hard you'd be hard pressed to to shoot anyone else. You know, is Matt Target's been brilliant, mm. like we say. K Mac's always brilliant, but Tim Ream's been a revelation. Yeah, I'm a Tim Reamer. Um, I really rate Tim Ream. He's just uh, he's the way he's improved is is unbelievable. Um, I just want to quickly say that Kevin McDonald block at the end we haven't mentioned it enough or, or haven't touched on it at all. <laughs> if it wasn't for that, it'd be two two or it, it would have been two two and we would have dropped two points. What a block! K Max um, just consistently brilliant, but yeah. like that means that he's not really an unsung hero. We all know he's consistently brilliant. So now you've taken away my option for it because I was going to say K Mac, oh. but I, I feel like it's because inside our fan base we're the only people that know how good he really is. Yeah, maybe we should keep it that but, way. But no one else, <laughs> yeah. But no one outside. It's like the Wakanda secret from Black Panther. Like if we keep Kevin McDonald's secret, then we can take over the world. Like, it's that good. Um, Kevin McDonald would be my unsung hero for all of those outside the Fulham fan base um, that don't understand how pivotal he is to the way we play. He's like every good centre midfielder, centre defensive midfielder. You don't realise he's there until the big moments and he does what he needs to do and no, has no headlines about him whatsoever. And that block that you say, Jack, is literally season-defining. If they yeah. if they get that, that point there, that could have been it. That could have been our Leeds moment, but it doesn't. He saves it and he's just bloody wonderful. And that's why he's on the back of my shirt this year. I think our, fi- our last and final question will be a slightly cynical one from Jake. He's, he says, literally, what do Piazon and Ojo do to justify game time? See, I think this is a bit harsh, um, and you know, I, I do understand this. I, I do get it because also Lucas Piazon's had two really bad games when he's come on recently, and he hasn't. He's really, really not offered very much. But to think about it in context of where we were, you know, at the start of the season, how pivotal Lucas Piazon was to that opening gambit, to just even saving us points when we were really, really up against it. And then how good he was against Burton and Nottingham Forest, like you said. You know, it, you can't write a player off because they come on for 10 minutes and don't have a particularly good game. And, and it's true. And, you know, he wasn't very good against Bristol City. It wasn't a, it wasn't a defining performance from Piazon. But he wasn't awful either. He worked hard, he, he put a shift in, and yeah, he wasn't as good as, you know, say, Sessignon or Aite, mm. who's, who's really been, you know, better in the last few weeks. But it doesn't, you know, automatically write Piazon off. And everyone's been saying that Ojo has been having bad games. I thought Ojo did all right both times he's come on recently. Mm. You know, against against Derby, he, he worked hard, he won the ball round a couple of times, he made a couple of, you know, runs to try and really clear the ball out of Fulham territory when it was re- we were really under the cosh. And against Wolves, you know, yeah, he was a bit selfish a couple too many times to, and hung onto the ball. But he was there, putting himself about, you know, making himself available, you know, wanting the ball, wanting space, and wanting to run at the back four. And that's kind of why he's there. We have him to run at defences. And yes, occasionally you lose the ball when you're a player like that. But you know, so did Aluka, and we all thought he was God's gift to mankind last mm. week, last year. So it, it's one of those where, you, of course, someone like Ojo is going to lose the ball more than someone like Sessegnon just because of the kind of player he is. Yeah. But it doesn't mean his contributions are relevant or suddenly, you know, suddenly just he's not very good because he has you know two bad games in the case of Lucas Piazon. These players have proved you know over the course of the season that they've been useful, and I think it would be absolute madness to write them off at this point. 
Yeah, especially when you're you're in need of that kind of squad depth to get us through to the end of the season. Um, Ojo, since he came back, he got the injury against QPR. When he came back against Sheffield United, he was one of our, our best players. He got a brace. And um, I think the one performance he didn't have a great one was at Sunderland, but no one had a good performance that day. Um, but since then, we've kind of, you know, because of the wing options we do have, we have Aito, we have Sessignon. Obviously, Sessignon's been played further forward on the left, although Ojo does come in on the right. Um, yeah, it's it's tricky, but I I think that they both obviously justify game time because they both you know do a job when they come on and they you know they know the system, they link up play, and they it just makes sense. I mean, and to be honest, you need more than you know eleven players you know in your worried. squad yeah. to get us through. Ben, um, I think Ojo is the one that stands out to me as as who's can be slightly questioned because. Although he does take the ball, as Jack says, um, I'm not sure he fits entirely with how the style of football we want to play. Um, I think he's got raw pace and he definitely knows how to take on a player. But if we're looking for tight link-up play, I'm not sure he really has that in his locker. And that's where someone like Piazon does justify his game time because he can play in those small spaces. It's the same as Aite. Um, I think Ojo, for a period of time, was uh, was by far our best player, especially at the start of the season, um, just after he came back from that knock, I think. Yeah. Or just before he got injured. He was going through a, a fantastic vein of form where he was scoring and assisting all over the place, but seems to have dropped off then. The thing you've got to remember about Ojo is that he's also very, very young and there's still quite a lot of growing for him to do. And he looks like the type of player that is struggling to realising himself what he actually wants to be does he want to be a flying winger does he want to be a second striker or does he want to be a striker himself there's a touch of the Jordan Ibes about him to be honest mm. and there's no surprise he comes from the same club as him or, or played with him um, so yeah I think uh, Ojo is the one that you sort of you look on with a little bit more of a magnifying glass because you don't really understand what he's trying to do although he can be effective in taking the ball away from dangerous areas as you say Piazon, we know exactly what he's going to bring and he's there for the games where it's very tough to unlock the door and he will do exactly that. And that's why um, Slavisa's brought it back because he trusts him. He's in that very small circle that Slavisa has of players that he can throw on there and those will do a job. And Piazon's quite good defensively as well and can play in a range of positions. So, so that's my justification, boys. There we are. There we are. Well, as with those three justifications of, of players being involved, that will bring us to the end of what's been a bit of a bumper podcast. We answered as many questions as possible. I'm really sorry to everyone we didn't get round to. We, we really can't answer them all. But it was. Um, we'll give some more of these some thought on Thursday, especially the ones that aren't quite as time-sensitive uh, when we talk about the Sheffield United game and look forward to Preston. There's a couple of bits of admin left to do. Ben Jarman, do you want to name this podcast? I think we'll probably go for um, one of the three-word reviews that we had at the start that was particularly good. And because it's his debut pod, uh, I think we'll go for Jack Kelly's Snow Stopping Fulham. Snow Stopping Fulham, there we are. Well, Jack. What a shout. There you are, there you are. <laughs> well, Jack, on that note, thank you very, very much for being on oh, the first podcast. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you, as always, to <laughs> the ever-reliable, ever-informative Ben Jarman. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Host. Thank you very much for listening as ever. You know, you can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Snapchat, which is Jack's domain. Yeah, follow the Snapchat, <laughs> it's a great story. She's <laughs> there. And you can get, you know, you can get at us at all of those platforms. You can email us if you have questions or anything to, to talk about at pod at fullermish.co.uk. Thank you as ever for listening in. I've been Jack Collins. This has been the Fullermish Podcast. You whites.